that have been on my heart, uh, things that, I want to address a couple of things that are happening in the nation today. You know, I've been, on the, I've been on the phone and texting and just communicating with several of my pastor friends uh, from different states and different things, and uh, just, just talking about where the nation is at. Now, uh, I am not going to I'm not going to do some things this morning in the next few minutes. Really, the, the only thing I know how to do is to go to the Bible. I, I just think that in everything that we do, we have to go to the Bible. I, I believe that, that there is uh, a lot going on, almost more, than, almost more than I can remember in any of the, the years, maybe the political years, but it's not just the politics of it, uh, and that I can remember as an adult. And uh, uh, pastors all over the country are praying. Uh, and I think it's good that we pray. I think we prayed last week. Uh, many of my friends are making statements and, uh, you know, they're, they're preaching. But you just got to be so careful because, you know, you don't want to, you, you don't want to do anything except focus all of our heart and our mind towards Jesus and, and the Bible. So I don't know how to address things that are happening in our nation any other way except from Scripture. Because that's my default setting. My default setting is what the Bible says and what Scripture says. But I also think that what is happening today is really important because there is a biblical aspect to it, which is when, when the world kind of goes crazy, Jesus has a way of, of inserting himself into that to get the glory. Now, uh, how many of you uh, just love Jesus with all your heart today? Come on, who loves him? All right. Now, I want to be really honest with you. I've never, I'm going to be very careful today because if you were me, you would be as well because you want to just really honor the Lord. But I've never really touched on this subject before. And uh, whether, whether we want to call it, there'll be a little bit of, you know, how do I feel about racism in here? Or what do I think about uh, the church and, and multicultural church? And then there's something you need to know, and that is that I am not great at discussing this subject like, this was not my forte. There are actually some people in the room today, I don't know if they're here this morning, in first or later on in second service, but they are experts at it. They do know how to discuss it. What I do know is that Jesus said that he's going to build his church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And, and anything that takes place that divides people really is an effort of the enemy to divide his church and to stop the progress of God, but, but God has a way of, of, of like springing that trap and doing something really amazing out of it. And uh, let's, let's turn this morning to Acts chapter 11. Now, uh, I used to do a portion of this scripture in, um, in the journey tracks. But because of time and because you have to kind of choose what you talk about on those tracks because, you know, there's, there's four classes, they're an hour and a half, I, I can't do, I, I tend to write a lot of material and so I can do a class for 45 minutes or an hour but I might write 150 pages of material and everybody thinks I'm crazy, like, you know, like, how are we going to do that, right? Uh, I, just, I just tend to do that. There used to be a portion 
of this in that class. So a few of you here who have been with us a while, before the church started to grow, before we went to two services, you probably took the class where I talked about Acts chapter 11. And what I want us to do today is I want us to get a biblical view of the church in terms of race. And I, and I can only do one point. I can, only, I can only touch on one subject today from the New Testament, but I think it is a pivotal moment. It was a pivotal moment in human history where the Apostle Paul was a part of something, and so was Barnabas. They were a part of something that was so pivotal in human history that it impacts us today. And it's actually what the church is, is built on. From the first brick to the last, it's built on what we're going to see in Acts chapter 11. And uh, so I want to read this portion of scripture to you, and then we're just going to get really excited about what God can do in the church, in the family of God. All right? So here we go. Acts chapter 11. Uh, and I'm going to start in uh, verse 19. Now in your Bible, if you, you know, your, your Bible's broken up into sections, and uh, uh, it's really interesting, too, how they broke the Bible up into sections and made verses, and I'll tell you sometime, because it's, it's not as holy as you, as you think. It was kind of a random sort of thing with a guy riding on a horse, and he was splitting it up. But I'll tell you that story some of the time. Verse 19. At the top, it's going to say something about Antioch, the church at Antioch, all right? And I'll, I'll, I'll stop and I'll comment as we go through the verses. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they spread the word of God only to the Jews. And so in the book of Acts, after the church's birth, after Pentecost, now Pentecost itself is an incredible example of how uh, God begins to join the races and what his plan was. It's a picture of how God wanted us to be one family. Uh, Pentecost itself Um, is not just symbolic, but it's the fulfillment of something that happened in Genesis. In the same chapter in Genesis, in the Tower of Babel, in the Tower of Babel, uh, there was pride in the people there trying to get to heaven and reach God, and they built this building, the Tower of Babel, and then God comes, and to kind of mess up their plan, he divides the languages. So he gives everybody different languages after Babel. So Babel was a division, but on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the people, and they all here in one language. And so the New Testament itself, even from Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost, is a picture of what was done to Babel being reversed in the New Testament. And so here we have in the New Testament at Pentecost a reversal of Babel where people come back together. Symbolically, all the races, all the language is going to be united, and the church is birthed at Pentecost with Peter. And then as the church began to grow and people began to get saved, there's persecution that happened. Now, in the first few uh, chapters of Acts, Peter um, is almost persecuted. He's kind of persecuted. You know, he's, Peter liked to pick a fight. Um, I had a friend of mine in high school who always liked to pick a fight. And half of me always wanted to hang out with him and the other half never wanted to see him because I knew I was going to get in trouble. Pete was the Christian version of that, okay? Pete always wanted to pick a fight for the gospel because he would go to the temple in Acts chapter 3 and he walks in and he's like, you know, under the gate called beautiful, but it didn't really look, you know, beautiful at the time to God because there was all kinds of things. So he just walks in and he's, you know, the priests are there and and the the priests are kind of dead in their heart and there's prayer going on and, and 
and prayer's, you know, dead. And, and he walks into a dead temple in the New Testament filled with form and religion. And Peter walks up to a guy sitting there and he says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I'm going to give to you. And he heals a guy. And Jesus comes in. They even had a priest that was in charge of healings in the temple, but, but healings never actually took place. And so that was the cushy job at the temple, right? That's the job you, if you didn't want to do anything, you just sit around and wait for healed people to come, and then you declare them clean. But instead of having to have some other thing happen where the priest declares you clean, uh, Jesus just heals a guy, and he runs in, and everybody knew him because he was in his 40s. They'd known him his whole life, and the place goes crazy and he says, I don't, basically, I don't need you to declare him clean or healed because Jesus just healed him. And they almost persecute people, Peter. They come so close to threatening his life, but they ended up, they let him go because the church was praying. But as you move forward into um, Acts chapter 7, the persecution begins with a man named Stephen. Stephen was a deacon. He wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon. He was somebody who served. He was a servant. He took care of the widows, and he helped with feeding the poor, and he did whatever needed to be done around, around you know, the house of God. But Stephen, because not only was he a deacon, he was also filled with the Holy Spirit. Come on, every ministry in the church is important. Everything that happens should be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no one higher or lower than anyone else. Can I hear an amen? Stephen was a powerful man of God. He was so powerful that they threw him onto the ground. They took rocks, and they stoned him, and they killed him. And that was the real, that was the beginning, that was the marker in the book of Acts for the persecution. And the, you know why they killed him? They killed him because when they were threatening him and getting ready to stone him, he, they, he, looked, he looked up into heaven, he saw a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, meaning that Jesus was God and that everybody there had a wrong idea of who God was and they stoned him for blasphemy and they killed him. But there were all kinds of people watching. There were all kinds of people in the city from all different places. And as soon as the persecution began, he ran, they all ran for their life. They ran uh, back to Phoenicia and back to Antioch. Some of these people traveled 500 to 1,000 miles. They ran as far as they could to get away from the persecution. So when you read that um, there was a, a persecution of Stephen, he was the first martyr in the New Testament, and it caused the people in Jerusalem to run for their lives. Now, the great part of this is that this thing, <laughs> I'm telling you, persecution begins. You know what those people did? They took off and they ran to every city that they came from and they all started small groups that turned into churches. Can I hear an amen? So whenever there's persecution, whenever there's chaos, whenever there's problems, God has a way of getting the glory. Now that's not just nationally in our world today. I want you to know for you, because it has to be real, when you find yourself in chaos and frustration and things aren't going right, you need to be looking for God to find a way in your position for God to get the glory out of what happened. And you know what? If we come out of it with a few scars, we're doing okay. Can I hear an amen? These people lost their heads. They were persecuted. They were crucified. They were hung upside down and burned at the stake. I think if we go through a little rough time once in a while and we get a little emotional, I think we're still doing okay. Can I hear an amen? We don't even know what it means to be persecuted. We don't know what it means to suffer. We think a hard day for us that turns us into tears is an everyday occurrence for people in other countries. I am not even going to get close to finishing my message today. I am on the longest rabbit trail that I've been on in a long time. I had two young men. I had two young men from the Sudan that had Thanksgiving with us a few years back. These two young men were guests of another missionary. These two brothers were sitting there. They were two of five brothers, and they've been trying to get to the U.S. It took them five years 
to get here uh, through the process, right? They arrived, and we had coffee at the table, and I'm asking them questions. We're sipping coffee, and all of a sudden, you know, as soon as we started to drink coffee, the weirdest thing happened. They started to laugh. They started to smile. They, they, were, they were high-fiving and joking, and, and, and they got really happy. And it, and it struck me so just interesting that it was kind of happened without me knowing that something happened. You know when you're not included in the joke, right? And all of a sudden, it just happened. And I said, why are you guys so happy? And the one, one of the brothers looks at me. He says, because in the Sudan, you never know if at the end of the co- cup of coffee, if you're even going to be alive, so you might as well be happy. And so they've learned that when they have little social moments and things, they laugh more, they, they joke more, they enjoy it more, because persecution is so real for them, they don't even know if they're going to be alive at the end of the meal. So what does it matter? Let's just enjoy God, enjoy family, and come what may, persecution and death, God's on the throne, and I'm going to go see him. That's, that's, that's the spirit that these people had in Antioch and in Phoenicia, these people who saw what happened to Stephen, they didn't just run and hide. They ran for their lives and they started churches. And then some of those people were, ended up being persecuted and martyred. Anyways, then it goes on to say this. It goes on to say this. It says, some of them, however, so they, they went and they preached the gospel only to the Jews. Only to the Jews. But there was a few men. It says this. There's a few from Cyprus and Cyrene who went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks. Oh my gosh. Speak to the Greeks? Speak to the Greeks. Like how dare, speak to the Greeks, the dirty people? You ever ever heard the word, um, this is all just, I'm just thinking about this. There's a word, the word barbarian. You know the word barbarian? The word barbarian in in the first century translated exactly means anyone who speaks Greek. Now, if that's not racism, I don't know what is, right? Let's come up with a name for people who speak a language, much less what they look like. The word barbarian means anyone who speaks Greek. So they went and they began to speak to the Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them. This is so important. Because as life goes by, you begin to, everything is kind of symbolic for us, right? But you begin to look for the hand of God in things. You know that if God's hand is on something, that it must be good. You you realize that, that God puts his hands on things that he wants to grow and to build and to shape and to mold. And it's not that his hand isn't on everything, but there are times where the Lord just puts his, his hand on something And oftentimes he puts his hand on the thing that seems the most chaotic. So in the middle of chaos and confusion, there's his hand and you wonder why, you know, is he just going to, he doesn't end it, it doesn't stop. He just brings the peace of God and he begins to work. It says the Lord's hand was with them. So when they faced persecution, when people made fun of them, when they lost their family, when they lost their friends, I told you uh, a few weeks ago in a message that that, that phrase, you know, you're dead to me, you're dead to me. I, mean, I, I preached on it a, a couple of months ago. It doesn't come from the Godfather. It, you know, you're dead to me. You know, it doesn't come from that. Al Pacino did not write that line. That line goes all the way back to the first century with the Jews, and that's what the Jews would say to people who married a Greek. If you married somebody who wasn't a Hebrew... They would say, you're dead to me, and they meant it. 
They wouldn't acknowledge the marriage. They wouldn't acknowledge the grandchildren, the children, the grandchildren. It was over. It's like they didn't exist. So the hand was on them while they were experiencing this. But it says that the, the hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It's an incredible picture. And the news of this, it reached the church in Jerusalem. You bet it did. It reached the church in Jerusalem because that's where all the really kind of uptight, legalistic Hebrew people lived. That's where the disciples were. We like to think of the disciples as like the the 12 apostolic perfectness of heaven. They were not. They were racist. They They were angry. They were insecure. They were Hebrew people who who had a hard time even allowing Greeks into the church. And when you get into Acts chapter 15, they actually had to call a council with all the apostles just to decide how they were going to handle these crazy islanders. Come on, somebody. These crazy islanders who were finding Jesus. And and they they don't want to get circumcised. Well, if they don't get circumcised, then they're not really part of the way. Jesus doesn't care if you're circumcised, not circumcised. And can we do me a favor? Can all, all of you turn in? Can we just never, never talk about circumcision again? It's just a horrible subject. But to them, they wouldn't even relate to somebody. They wouldn't even acknowledge somebody if they weren't circumcised. And so Peter and Paul ended up having this huge argument around the cafeteria table. You read it in Acts chapter 15. And somebody went to sit with somebody else, and there's all this drama But it was a really big deal. So the news reached Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas, a peacemaker. You see, God sends peacemakers when the culture is in ruin and chaos. If there's ever been a time where we need to be peacemakers, it's right now. If there's ever been a time where we need to be careful how we speak, it's right now. If there's ever been a time where we need to unleash more love than we've ever unleashed, it's right now. If there's ever been a time where we need to be as the least bit of judgmental, get every judgmental spirit out of us, if there's ever been a moment, it's this moment in our culture. We need a Barnabas spirit. We need to be the kind of people that when, when, when there are things happening, people are, are dying and people are being persecuted and there's racism that is flying around the church and the culture, that, that you know who they go for? They go look for the Barnabas because Barnabas is a peacemaker. The church is supposed to be a Barnabas church in seasons like this, a peacemaking church where we believe the best for everybody, we don't judge anybody, and trust me, Paul needed Barnabas, because if you don't know the story, nobody, the the Jews didn't, the apostles and the Jews didn't even want anything to do with Paul, because Paul had given the approval before he got saved to kill the church. He was traveling and killing Christians and shutting the church down. They didn't trust him. They didn't want to be around him. They thought he was a spy. Barnabas came in and said, no, I will vouch for Paul. He was a peacemaker. So in times of struggle, we look for Barnabases. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, when he arrived and and saw that the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, he was glad 
And he encouraged all of them to encourage with true hearts the grace of God. The grace of God is, it's the, it's, it's the peace, it's the blood of peace. It's, it's the only thing that allows us to have any peace at all. It's the grace of God. It's, it's the grace of God that allows us to have peace with each other. It's the grace of God that allows us to have peace in our families. It's the grace of God that allows us to have peace in our marriages. It's the grace of God that allows us to have peace with our children and our grandchildren. And, and, and there comes a point where we have to kind of go higher and look up. And, you know, the first time I ever, I'm going to tell you a story, the first time I ever experienced what we would call discrimination or racism in my life, it's kind of a funny story because it just, it just is what it is. And, I, and it marked me as a kid because you're a kid and you just remember things, right? My mom had brought us home, divorced mom, now single mom, brings these two kids home from Hawaii. And back in the day, uh, you know, we dressed funny. My mom dressed us funny. And uh, I had really long hair, really long, dark, you know, uh, black hair. And, and uh, I was a lot darker then, just as a kid. And on the island, you just get really dark. And, and so she brings us back. And we moved into a place that, uh, near Lake Oswego, Oregon, if you know where that is. But back then, uh, I was the darkest thing in the whole city. I'm just telling you right now. Like, no, there, were, there were no African Americans. There were no Asians at the time. This is way back, you know, in, in the early 70s in this part of town. And I show up, my sister and I, and we, we moved into this field where my aunt, my aunt owned a field. And we lived in a house. And my grandparents crossed the street. My aunt had a field. And uh, she kept two horses in the field. Patches and Apache, those were her two horses. Beautiful horses. And my sister and I, we moved in to the neighborhood with my mom, and we wanted to play with the horses. And on the first day, on the first day, or second day, right when we moved there, we go running across the street, down through the field, and we're chasing the horses. And we're playing the horses. We're trying to entice the horses with carrots and apples, and we're having the time of our life. My mom's at home making lunch, and the phone rings. And, and she picks up the phone, and, and one of the neighbors says this, is this Mrs. Lassett? Is this Mrs. Lassett? I need to talk. This is Mrs. Lassett. She's like, hurry, hurry. There's two little Indian kids stealing your horses. <laughs> it's, like, it's like she'd been watching way too many Westerns. And my mom just laughed, and she said, she said, no, those are my children, and they're Filipino-Hawaiian, and, and uh, they're not stealing the horses. And, and it, was, it was a funny moment in our family. We still laugh about it today because, because it, it was the beginning of kind of a little journey for two little Asian-Hawaiian Filipino kids in a neighborhood. Uh, we went through some things, and, and what I've learned is, is that when it, when it comes to the, to the people of God, what we have to do is regardless of what is happening back and forth at any moment, we have a responsibility to go a little higher. Because what happens is in a time when, when there's chaos is that we tend to not be able to see the, the, the forest amongst the, amongst the trees. And one of my kids a few years ago said, what, is the, what does that mean, forest amongst the trees? Well, it means that, that when there's a tree right in front of you, if you're standing right in front of you, that thing that's right here, 
that, that there's nothing else that you can see except that tree. But we have a responsibility to see the forest. Even if we only see the tree, we have a responsibility to be, to be thinking about the big picture of everything and try to go higher. You know, when I, when I started uh, uh, moving to Denver, we, we would uh, we'd come over here and we'd drive around. But when we would get on an airplane, you, you see a different perspective on a plane. So Denver's interesting because it's all divided up into little squares everywhere. There's a thousand little squares of neighborhoods. Well, when you live in a neighborhood, you go, oh, I live in this neighborhood. But if you're a pastor, a Christian, a leader, you get into a plane and you fly over the top of Denver, you see the, the most organized uh, structure, patchwork of neighborhoods that you've ever seen in your whole life. It's really phenomenal. And the rest of the country doesn't look like that. And so when you go higher, I remember looking out the window thinking, man, I want a small group in that neighborhood and that neighborhood and that neighborhood and that neighborhood and that neighborhood. And it wasn't just that I wanted, but I could see the neighborhood. I could see 200 houses there. And then you get grass and, and wheat. I see 200 houses over here. And I think that neighborhood and that neighborhood. And so if we really want to, if we really want to be a part of what God wants to do and really want to have his vision, we have to go higher and look and see and not just get caught up with what is right here and what we see because God wants us to go somewhere with this. And so the, the, this part of, of Acts does that. Look what happens next. So they sent Barnabas. He encouraged them because they had good hearts. He was a good man and he was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He went and got Paul, Saul, and brought him. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for one solid year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. So there's a church now that's been birthed out of the persecution of Stephen. So for one year, they taught and a great number of people were saved. Now, if, if you have a Bible, I want you to mark this in your Bible. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, I want you to look here at your worship guide. And I'll, we're going to fill in a couple of blanks if you have those today. But let me try to, in the last couple of minutes, just structure this in a way that you can see the heartbeat of what I'm trying to deliver this morning. Uh, I want you to look at number one. Uh, the title of the message is The Church That Jesus Had In Mind. The church that Jesus had in mind, number one, is a church that rises in chaos and is not defeated by it. The church that Jesus had, had in mind always rises in the midst of chaos. You can't stop the church, you can't kill the church, you can't defeat the church, you can't, the church has always been here, it's going to grow, it's, it's, it's sweeping the planet and persecution, out of persecution, there's always church growth. And if you're a church growth student, you know that. You know that in persecution, the church grows and people get saved and leaders are born and movements are established, that comes out of persecution. Because God put eternity in our heart. And you can try to suppress eternity, you can, you can suppress my body, and you can persecute my body, but you can't suppress eternity. And sometimes it takes the persecution of, of the culture or chaos in the culture for us to get in touch with eternity. And so that's why in the middle of persecution, the church always grows. So when chaos is on the rise, so is Christ. 
Super important for us to understand today, where we're at today. When, when chaos is on the rise, so is Christ. And we look for that, and we go higher in everything. Number two, the church that Jesus had in mind is a church that breaks down walls. It's a church that breaks down walls. Now, a little bit about Antioch. Antioch was one of the great cities of, of the early church. The first, in the first century, it's actually located in southern Turkey, about 12 miles from the Syrian border. Still there today. But in that day, it was one of the first cities that had major commerce. It's right on the elbow of a, of a major river, and they could move things up and down the river. And they were incredibly wealthy, and they had business and theaters and, and all kinds of activities. And the city literally just exploded. It exploded first to about 400,000 people, which you have to understand in those days, 400,000 people was a major city. And then went over a million they were brilliant. They were educated. Uh, many people speak, spoke five, six, seven, eight languages at the time. And they were, the, they were actually the first city in human history to create a network of, of light, fire, and reflection to give them lighted streets and sidewalks at night. So if you walked down the street in, in the middle of the night, it would be lit up because they just the way their engineers worked. It was an incredible city. At the time, it was a major marvel on planet Earth. That's the city. That's Antioch. In Antioch, because of its location, it drew people from all, of the, all over the known world. And it was a safe place. If you wanted to get into Antioch, you would have to go through a giant wall. Like every movie you've seen from that part of the town, you know, a protection wall. It was there to protect the people on the inside and keep people, other enemies on the outside. It had the largest wall of its day. So if you were to, to go around the city, you'd see a wall to protect it. But if, if you could take a modern instrument and fly over the top of the city of Antioch, you would actually uh, see something that you would only have found in Antioch and nowhere else. And that was that, that it wasn't just a city of a wall, it was a city of walls. Because people from all over the world would move into the city. If you got above it, you would see that the whole city was divided, not by streets, but by walls that had streets inside of them. And so what happened was is that people would move in. They were moving in in such great numbers, they created their own little community, their own little ethnic group. Every nation within a 1,000 miles was represented, and they created their own part of the neighborhood, and they were so afraid that they built walls around their neighborhood. And so it was a city of walls, and people divided. And nobody crossed those lines. You didn't cross over, you didn't do business with those, with those people from the other wall. You didn't hang out with anybody from the other wall. You didn't, you didn't let your kids, you didn't have play dates with people from, that were inside you know, the other wall. You didn't do it. The problem is that the grace of God, the hand was on a few people that were from different nations. See, the, the God, at, at the persecution of Stephen, some people got saved, but they were from all different nations. And it says that they fled back to the cities. And now there are people in Antioch of different races going into their walled community, spreading the gospel. And then what happened was so many people began to get saved that it, it created a, a sense of revival. And it was so powerful that they heard about it in Jerusalem. Now, many people would preach and teach this like this. They would say that the Holy Spirit, think about, think about how discriminatory this is. The Holy Spirit, how can the Holy Spirit fall on Greeks. People were so discriminatory, they were like, God would never send his Holy Spirit to a Greek. 
So some people preach this as if the miracle that brought the people from Jerusalem was the Holy Spirit falling on people, but it's incorrect because there had already been miracles. There had already been revivals. There had already been resurrections. There had already been healing. The apostles did not send Barnabas, a a peacemaker, all the way over to, to Antioch so that he could see a miracle because everybody already had miracles. They believed in miracles. But what they could not believe was that there were people getting saved from every single ethnic group. And those people did not know what to do inside their wall. So they began to come out of their walls and they would meet together in the streets and in courtyards. People would come out of their walls and they did not have a name for that group. See, because up until that point, every single person was known by their ethnicity. Every person was known as a Phoenician, a Cyrene, a Roman, a Greek, a Hebrew. That was your only distinguishing mark When Jesus fell on these people and they began to get saved, it was so confusing to what was happening. They had to come up with a different name. And and this name that they called them was not based on their ethnic group. It was based on who they follow. And it says, it was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. They were called Christians because they had formed a new family. They were called Christians because they had formed a new group, a new nation, a New Testament church that had every color, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every person. They didn't know what to do with them. It was so out of control that they sent Barnabas to see if it was real. And then Barnabas had to go, wow, it's actually good. They're filled with God. The Holy Spirit is falling on them. And so then to protect the work, Barnabas went and got Saul, brought him there because he'd been persecuted by all his family and friends and now he wanted to reach Greeks, brought brought Saul where he felt safe and he could preach to the people he felt safe to. Paul was the apostle of the New Testament. Paul's the apostle of the new family. Paul's the apostle of all the ethnic groups coming together trying to find a new name. We are Christians. And they stayed there just to protect the work because it was so volatile. Barnabas, the peacemaker, stayed. We need to be Barnabases. They even, they even, and I, I, I got, I'm out of time, so I, I've got to just, I'm going to throw these out here, but they even started a new leadership team. Even when you study this out, Paul, Paul created a multi-ethnic leadership team. Now, I understand in, in the world of demographics, what your church looks like is largely based on demographics. I totally understand that, but... I want you to, to know that the early church, this was, how, how do I say this? Everything that Jesus did was to tear down barriers between people. That's it. He's the barrier destroyer. He's the, it started between the Greeks and the Jews, and then it started between the, the you know, in terms of who, who gets God, and then it was how you relate to each other, and then it was in between nations. There's no other thing that God does. There's nothing else, because that's what he did for us when, when he died on the cross. He eliminated the ultimate barrier between us and him. He became the sacrifice for all of our sin, black, white, brown, Asian. That, that's, what it, that's what he did. And so Jesus then Jesus then, he breaks down the walls. He created a multi-ethnic leadership team, Paul did. And, and it had people that were, like Saul was on the team. Saul was a Hebrew and Barnabas. But you know, even Saul himself uh, came from freed slaves. If you follow Saul's life and his Roman history, even there, 
their group where he came from came from earlier in their history. Uh, they were slaves. Uh, there was a man named uh, Manian. Manian was a Roman. He was a Greek. He got saved. Uh, Lucius. Uh, Lucius was uh, a man from Cyrene, and Cyrene is in North Africa. So they had North Africans on their leadership team. And if you just kind of take time and you go through their whole group of people, you see that they had, even on their leadership team, they had an incredible diverse leadership team. And absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Number three, uh, number three is this, and you can just write these down if you're taking notes, and I'll do these quickly, but there's a way that the church should respond. So I wanted to get to this a little deeper today, but it just is what it is. I hope you feel the spirit of what I'm saying. We have to go higher. We got to make sure we keep our eyes on Jesus and make sure that we pull down barriers towards each other. Let me give you a couple of things, how the church should respond in a time like this. Always reach for unity in the spirit as a starting point. Always reach for unity in the spirit. All of us have a unity in the spirit that sometimes I think tends to take a back seat. It's like in, instead, of, instead of being Christians, we tend to pull ourselves, because of our, just our flesh, we pull ourselves back into who we are in the flesh as opposed to pressing ourselves into who we are in the spirit. We don't want to go backwards, we want to go forward. Number two, we have to commit to be a learner. We have got to be learners. We've got to be willing to learn from each other and, and, and understand that you don't know what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. I don't care who you are or where you come from. God's people are humble and they learn from each other. And we all learn from Christ. The Bible is the ultimate standard, the grace of God. But if you want to have relationships and if you want to grow as a person and if you want to grow in your understanding of how to, how to love people and understand people and you don't want to be shallow, then be a learner. Ask good questions. Don't be afraid. You know, I'm telling you right now, sometimes even on some of these subjects, I'm even afraid to ask questions to learn because I don't want my questions to be offensive to some people. But I've gotten over it. And I've realized that my questions, if they're done in the spirit of trying to learn, people love it. They respond to it. They understand it. We've got to be a learner. So number one, reach for unity in the spirit. Number two, we've got to commit to be learners. Number three, we have to see all people the way Christ sees them. See all people the way Christ sees them. Because all of us, all of us have to stay tapped into the Jesus perspective. And if you go back here to, to the book of Acts, this is what, this is what they did. They got, they went up higher and they saw through the eyes of Jesus. Uh, the next one, let your faith, let your faith, your faith in God dictate your response. In everything that happens, whether you're watching TV or listening to a conversation and if somebody says something that's offensive to you or something you don't agree with or something comes up, don't let your flesh dictate your response. Don't let your own opinions, let your faith dictate your response. Be a Barnabas. I want everyone to say, I am a Barnabas. Can I say it again a little louder? I am a Barnabas. Let your faith And what God can do in this time, dictate your response. Two more, each person should be authentic about your story. See, one of the things that causes causes Christianity to grow and be stronger is a sense of authenticity about what God has done in you. So one of the most powerful things that you can do is be really authentic about you and your experiences. 
And not be afraid if somebody says, well, you know, what's God doing in your life? And is this hard for you? Don't, don't be afraid to say, look, this has been hard for me. This is what happened. Be authentic. Because in authenticity, God then covers that with his grace. And, and the grace makes it real and, and makes it powerful and authentic and, and anointed. And the last one here, we all have to be committed to writing a new future. There has to be a commitment in God's people to look forward into what God can do, what God will do, and, and where the church is going. Just a few quick little thoughts for you on how to respond. Be authentic. Look with your faith. Believe with your heart. Like grace, just abide. Uh, just allow God to, to keep us moving and viewing things through his eyes. So the church itself, the church itself, when, when chaos rises, so does Christ. And, and the, the church in Antioch is almost a perfect image of what is happening today in our nation. And we are called to be Barnabases because only Barnabases can see the gospel get into every person's heart, which pulls everybody up to grace. I don't want to be behind my wall. I want to be in the courtyard with God's family. Can I hear an amen? I want to be like those people. And it was in Antioch where they called them Christians. Do me a favor as we close. I want to pray for that Jesus moment. That's what I want to do. I want us to all be a part of the family today. Will you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Give me 30 seconds. If you're here today and you don't know if you're actually a part of the family of God in the sense that you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. If you're here today and you've never prayed or maybe it's been a long time and you've been on a long journey somewhere between Jerusalem and Antioch trying to figure it all out, if, if, if you feel in your heart that you need to pray this prayer again, that's okay, that's for you. But I want us to pray, I want us to receive Jesus into our heart and I want us to, to come into the courtyard of God's family to be a part of what God is doing and be a part of Jesus and his life and his world and not be stuck in my own little spot. God's got a great plan for you. He wants to guide you and he wants to lead you. He wants to love you and heal you. But we have to have a relationship with him. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're here this morning and your heart is telling you, refresh your commitment to Jesus or make it for the first time, I want you to lift your hand quickly right now. Just lift it up. Let me see it because I can pray and wrap this up. If that's you, thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody here need to refresh their relationship with Jesus today? Okay, here we go. Let's pray. Pray this with me, church. Say, Lord Jesus, today I receive you into my heart. I am a part of the family of God. And Jesus, I give you everything. Thank you, Father, for forgiving me.